Alrighty, so the Bible reading today, coming from Hebrews 4.14 to 6.12, which you can find in the handout that you are given, or in your Bible as well. Um, Alright. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you, because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, uh, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away, to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. The land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, 
inherit what has been promised. Oh, well, g'day. Um, my name is Ben. I'm one of the staff workers here at CU. Um, and it's a joy to open God's Word together with you. Um, as Josh mentioned, at the start of semester, we began a series in the book of Hebrews. And after uh, coming away to look at Ecclesiastes for a little while, we're now going to pick up again in Hebrews 4 to 6 and continue uh, in Hebrews for the rest of the semester. And the part of Hebrews that we're looking at today raises a huge issue. The question of confidence If you've decided to follow Jesus, how can you be confident that you'll be saved? How can you be sure? And this is a huge question because there are all kinds of things that can make us feel unsure. For example, what if I've sinned too badly? Or too many times? Can I still be confident of being saved then? Or what if at some point in the future I turn my back on Jesus and walk away from the faith? How can I have any confidence that I'll still be trusting in Jesus 20 years from now? So how can we be sure? Well, the passage that we've just had read out addresses these questions. And it gives us two rock-solid reasons for confidence. Two reasons that we can be sure. The first is God's work for us. And the second is God's work in us. God's work for us and God's work in us. Let's have a look at those together. So firstly, God's work for us. Uh, Have a look in your handouts with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. The first ones that are printed there. Reading from verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us therefore approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, it's helpful to understand that a high priest is someone who acts as a go-between, as a mediator between God and people. And this passage is saying that Jesus has become our high priest. He's our mediator, the one who brings us to God. But here's the question. How can I be confident that Jesus will want to save someone like me? Because here's the problem. Even though I have put my trust in Jesus, I continue to sin against God all the time. Now, don't get me wrong. I try to live to please God. I really do. I try to fight against sin and to live selflessly for others instead of living selfishly for myself. And often in God's kindness, he helps me to win the battle against sin and temptation. But the problem is, often I don't win that battle. I give in. I rebel against God. So why would Jesus put up with someone like me? Why would he save someone like me? And maybe that's a question that you've asked yourself as well. 
And God answers that question, actually, for us here in Hebrews 4. He reminds us that Jesus is the kind of high priest who understands our weakness. He understands our struggle with sin. Uh, Look again in your handout with me at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. And so it says, based on this, let us therefore approach God's throne, of, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now that phrase, that time of need, literally means the time when we most need help. The time when we're most helpless, when we're most feeling our utter unworthiness. In that moment, even at that time, You can have confidence to receive God's mercy and grace. Why? Because in Jesus we have a high priest who meets us in our weakness. Because of course, and this is a glorious truth, Jesus became a human just like us. Although he's a glorious high priest who is now in the heavens at the right hand of God, 2,000 years ago he stepped into the mess of the human experience. And in his life on earth, Jesus was every bit (coughs) as human as you and me. It's easy to forget that he was just as human as we were. And that means that he knows what it is to struggle, to be tempted, to suffer. And that's a game changer, isn't it? Because that means when Jesus tells us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to fight against sin... He's not some general who's sitting far off in a comfy chair, you know, in command centre, telling us, his soldiers, who are in the trenches to do his dirty work. No, he's a captain who is in the trenches with us, leading us in the charge and the fight against sin. He's got blood on his uniform, just like we do. He knows firsthand what it is to suffer in the cause of obedience to God, to feel weak, to groan in the suffering of this fallen world. He even knows what it is to be tempted and to struggle against sin. The only difference, of course, is that Jesus never gave in, which is precisely why he's able to save us. Have a look with me in your handouts at verses 7 to 9 of chapter 5, which flesh this out for us. Hebrews 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That son though he was, or although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now these verses give us a striking picture of Jesus' humanity. But they also raise some pretty big questions as well. What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? Is that saying that he used to be disobedient beforehand? And what does it mean that he was made perfect? It says once made perfect. Well, surely Jesus has always been perfect for all eternity, hasn't he? 
Well, here's the thing. This passage is not saying that Jesus was disobedient before he became a human being. No, Jesus has always lived in perfect relationship with the Father for all eternity past. What it's saying is that through suffering, Jesus learned a deeper kind of obedience. Because it's one thing to obey when it costs us nothing. But to obey when we know it will involve suffering? Well, that's an experience you can only learn by doing. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced in a deeper way than we will probably ever realise. The night before Jesus was arrested and killed, Jesus prayed to God, asking that he would be spared from what he was about to face. The pain, the torture, the humiliation, the shameful death hanging exposed on a wooden cross. The weight of the world's sin, bearing that weight on his shoulders. So Jesus prayed, he said, Father, if you are willing, spare me from what I'm about to face. He asked to be delivered from it. Yet, if there's no other way that they can be saved, then Father, your will be done. That's what Jesus prayed. And then... He obeyed his father. He allowed himself to be arrested. As Philippians 2 puts it, Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in his suffering, he took the punishment you and I deserve. So that if we trust in him, we can be forgiven. So yes, Jesus has always uh, Jesus was always obedient to the Father in eternity past, but it was only in his life on earth that he learned firsthand what it is to suffer in the cause of obedience. And that is exactly the kind of high priest, the kind of go-between, the kind of mediator that we need. And that's what it means as well in verse 9 when it says that through this Jesus was made perfect. Not that he was imperfect beforehand, but through his obedient suffering on the cross, he became the perfect saviour who meets our need. One who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. One who both understands our weakness and yet is strong enough to save us from it. That's the only kind of person who could save us. So how can I be confident that I'll be saved, even when it feels like I'm hopelessly weak and caught in the struggle against sin? What if you feel that you've sinned too much? Well, if you have trusted in Jesus, then you have a high priest who can empathise with your weaknesses. And you can therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence through him and the work that he accomplished for you on the cross. So how can we be confident? Firstly, God's work for us. And now secondly, God's work in us. Because look, we've just seen that if I trust in Jesus, I can be confident that I'll be saved even despite my failings. And that's our primary grounds for confidence. But then what if I stop trusting in Jesus? 
If trusting in Jesus is the only way I'll be saved, then what if I turn my back on him one day? Then I won't be saved. So how can I be confident that I'm not going to just walk away from the faith at some future time? Well, that's a really big question. And Hebrews 6 gives us both a warning and an encouragement. So have a look with me in your handouts at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Reading from verse 4. It says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. It's impossible for those people, if they've done all that and fallen away, to be brought back to repentance. <coughs> okay, so uh, picture this person who, who looks like they're following Jesus. They, they go to church, maybe they're involved with CU. They say, yes, I believe the gospel. I trust in Jesus. And from all outward appearances, it seems like they're a Christian. But one day, for whatever reason, they fall away. They turn their back on Jesus. They give up the faith. Uh, well, that is the kind of person that this passage is envisioning. And it's saying that, that if that happens, if this person has experienced all these things and then truly and fully falls away, it is impossible for that person to be brought back to repentance. Now, let's be clear on what this is not saying. It's not saying that if someone turns their back on Jesus, but later repents and turns back to God, they can't be saved. No, it's not saying that that if they turn away and then repent, God will reject them. No, not at all. God won't turn away anyone who repents and turns to him. It's saying that once someone has experienced something of Christianity, they've been enlightened, tasted the goodness of God's word and so on, once someone has experienced something of Christianity and turned away, it is possible for them to get to such a place that they will not repent. That their hearts could become so hard that despite all the efforts of the people around them, they cannot be brought back to repentance. Now, when we talk about repentance, uh, to repent basically just means to turn. It means to make a a change in in heart, mind and action and to turn away from living for ourselves and to turn to God. And this passage is saying that it's possible for us to get to a point where our hearts are so hard that we will not turn to God. That we cannot be brought back to repentance. Because here's the thing. Once we know who Jesus is, then the longer we choose not to submit to him, the longer we choose to live our own way, then the harder our hearts will become. And this is a very serious warning. You know, a person might think, oh look, Christianity might be true. Maybe Jesus is who he says he is, but... Look, I just want to live my way for a while, and and what's the harm? I can always just turn to God later. But this passage is warning us that you can't always just turn to God later. 
that if you reject him now, you might get to a place where it is impossible for you to be brought to repentance. And the tragedy is that this happens all too often. People think, maybe I'll turn to God later, one day. But then day after day, week after week, month after month, little by little, their hearts grow harder. It's imperceptible at first. They don't even notice it. But in the end, it's fatal. Now you might be here today and think maybe this is a warning for you. And if that is you, then please don't put it off. Put your trust in Jesus today. Make the choice to submit your life to him, come what may. I'm going to throw my lot in with Jesus. Don't think that maybe you'll do it later. That's a lethal trap and the stakes couldn't be higher. Okay, so this passage has a big warning. But if we've put our trust in Jesus, it also shows us how we can avoid that trap. And it encourages us to show us how we can be confident of our lasting salvation. So have a look in your handouts with me at chapter 6, verse 9 and following. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. So that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Okay, so we saw there that the, the author of Hebrews is confident of, of better things. He's confident that the people he's writing to, when he wrote this letter, will be saved. Now here's the question. Why? Why is he confident? What is the basis for his confidence in their salvation? Well, I think it's there in verse 10, isn't it? It's because of their work and the love they've shown God as they helped God's people. He says that if they show that same diligence to the end, being diligent, doing good works, flowing out of their love for God, then what they hope for, salvation, will be fully realised. They'll inherit what God has promised. So to sum it up, the reason he's confident is that he sees evidence of God's work in them as they do good works and help others. Now, I need to avoid a dangerous error here. It's not saying that if they work hard and be diligent in doing good works, that they'll earn their salvation. No, not at all. Salvation is a free gift from God through faith in Jesus. Just like we saw in Hebrews 4, receiving grace and mercy from God. But it is saying that if we're truly saved, then good works will be the outward evidence of God's continued work in us. If you think of salvation as a tree, picture a nice big beautiful tree with um, big red fruit on it, then good works are the fruit, not 
the root. Now that has to be true because it rhymes. <laughs> of course it would rhyme if you said it the other way around, but um, if you think about it, the roots are what give life to a tree, aren't they? They, they nourish it and enable it to live. But the fruit is simply the outward evidence of a tree that is alive and flourishing, that's got a healthy root system. And the Bible says that good works don't save us. They're not the life-giving root system. That's Jesus. But they are the appropriate evidence, the visible outworking of a Christian who is alive and flourishing. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist told the people who were coming to him to be baptised and confess their sins... Uh, they were all repenting and turning to God, and he warned them not to just repent and think that, that, uh, that that's it. And think that, so they say because, because they say they've repented, that's all that needs to happen. He says, no, Matthew 3 verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Or in, or in Acts 26 verse 20, the Apostle Paul says... I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. So our deeds don't save us. No, as we turn to God and trust in Jesus, he's the one who saves us. But our deeds are the outward evidence of God at work in us. And here's the key point that's so important for us to grasp. Hebrews 6 is saying, therefore, that if we want to be confident of our salvation, then we should be diligent in good works as the outworking of our faith in Jesus. Because we and those around us will be able to look at that, God's, look at, look at that outward evidence and thank God for it. Hebrews 6, verses 11 to 12, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. So that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, faith, who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Because here's the thing. As we serve others, as we grow in maturity, as we see the evidence of God's work in us, we can be greatly assured that God will keep working in us until the last day. So I wonder, what might it look like for you to show diligence in growing as a Christian and serving others this year? What might it look like for you to make that your priority? And really, this is, this is at the heart of our mission as CU, to proclaim Jesus Christ at UWA to present everyone mature in him. We want everyone to be mature in Jesus. You know, we don't want you to graduate from uni kind of still a Christian, but just kind of hanging on to your faith by a thread. No, we want you to come away mature, confident in your faith, overflowing in good works, Equipped to serve God's people and share your faith. We want you to come away thriving as a Christian. A tree overflowing with good fruit. And so I wonder, what might it look like for you to be diligent in growing and serving this year? 
and there are heaps of opportunities. You could sign up for Equip in semester two, which we run on Monday Arvos, uh, to help you grow in your convictions and gain skills to serve others. You could come to MYC in July and grapple with what the Bible says about how God gives us guidance and direction in life's challenges and the, and the decisions we have to make. You get involved with your church, not just attending, but serving, whether it's as a youth leader or a kids teacher, running sound desk or PowerPoint or some other way. There are heaps of opportunities and this passage is encouraging us to be diligent. Make it your priority. Imitate those who faith and patience inherit what God has promised us in Jesus. Because if you have trusted in Christ, then the same God who saved you is also working to keep you trusting in Christ and to mould you into his image day by day. So how can you be sure? How can we be confident that we'll be saved? Well, Hebrews has given us two rock-solid reasons. First and foremost, God's work for us in Jesus. And secondly, God's work in us. So to close, uh, let's hear again these great words that encourage us from Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us therefore approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we um, confess that in so many ways um, we see that our hearts are rebellious against you. That even in, our, um, even in our good intentions, we're unable to live wholeheartedly to please you. We feel our weakness in so many ways. But thank you, Lord, that even though we're so stuck in sin and rebellion against you, you didn't leave us to receive what we deserved. You graciously sent Jesus to share in our mess, to share in our weakness and in our struggle, and to save us from it through his death and resurrection. So please, Lord, would you encourage us with those truths? Would you move us to put our trust in Jesus? And by your Holy Spirit, would you continue to be at work in us, to keep us trusting in him, and to be diligent in good works, flowing out, from all that you've done for us. So that not just now, but 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, we can be utterly confident that we will be saved. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us in Jesus. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen.